You can tell people sex all the way through their bodies. It's not just our sex organs. There's a good name for people thinking it's just about our sex organs, which is bikini medicine. The bikini medicine is the idea that humans are the same except for the bits that are covered by the bikini. Well, actually, your fingers are different. Your tendons are different. Everything's different between men and women, a little bit. In some ways, a lot, but in some ways, a little. Yeah, so basically anything where the fact that we come in two sexes and that one of those sexes bears pretty much all the burden of reproduction, anywhere that that matters, it matters that you acknowledge sex. And that means toilets, changing rooms, rape crisis centres, domestic violence shelters, positive action, anti-discrimination law, yeah, education, you probably need to be thinking about it in terms of tracking, like anything that requires you to track data in order to look at or fight discrimination. Of course, matters in sexual orientation. If you haven't got sex, you haven't got sexual orientation. So if you care about homophobia or bigotry towards same-sex attracted people, you're going to have to pay attention to sex. You must be some kind of therapist. Well, my next guest hardly needs any introduction. In fact, um, many of you listening to this podcast only know who I am because of her. But that being said, I could not be more delighted to welcome back Helen Joyce and to kick off the new year. Um, as I might have mentioned, uh, in 2024, I will be welcoming back previous guests, deepening my relationships over time with people you've heard from in previous episodes. And what better way to start this off than with Helen Joyce? Uh, Helen was featured in episode 11 of my podcast, Debunking the Myth of Conversion Therapy in 2022. And uh, that that was a unique episode because she interviewed me. Now, that was for a very particular reason, um, which is her advocacy work with Sex Matters addressing this issue of conversion therapy and the importance of stories like mine from therapists like me in assisting with that work. But the number one complaint, although that is still the most watched video, the most listened to episode of my podcast, the number one complaint is that I did all the talking. Um, so we're going to fix that today. <laughs> Helen is here and I'm going to let her do some of the talking. Um, Helen, so great to have you back. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me back. And, you know, for, for your listeners, that was what I wanted. I wanted to hear about Stephanie's stories of how it works being somewhere that there's law on the books already about conversion therapy, because I wanted to present those stories here in the UK where we don't have such laws. And we need to get politicians to understand that there's a massive cost to these laws that they don't hear about from the trans lobby. And we will get to all of that today. Your background in journalism, you're an excellent interviewer. And uh, so that I think is a great place to start. I forgot the rest of your bio, but of course, you know, of course, it's like you need no introduction, but just in case anybody doesn't know who you are and they're somehow listening to my podcast, um, Helen Joyce is the author of Trans When Ideology Meets Reality, um, which I had not read when we interviewed, but I, I have read since then. Um, she's a former journalist at The Economist who now works part-time as director of advocacy for Sex Matters and part-time doing freelance journalism. Um, so maybe let's start there. Last year, you interviewed me about my experience of facing down allegations of so-called conversion therapy. Can you tell us what was that a part of? What was that for? And then where are those issues currently in the UK? So probably most people listening to this show will know that there's been a global push to pass laws banning so-called conversion therapy for both sexuality and gender identity, sexual orientation and gender identity, which are sort of conflated and shoved into this single acronym, SOGI. 
And what conversion therapy means is this practice that's basically obsolete across the developed world, like it's 50 years ago, where therapists tried to, inverted commas, fix gay people, basically by torturing them, you know, making them associate uh, their natural attraction to people of the same sex with, for example, getting electric shocks or, um, you know, taking things that make you sick and then trying to get them to associate pleasant things with looking at, say, you know, pornographic materials of the opposite sex. And this doesn't work. I mean, the most that you can do is temporarily make people feel aversive towards their natural sexuality, but it's also very cruel. And so no reputable, um, like no registered, in fact, therapist of any sort would do this. Like, you know, it's it just, it, it doesn't happen. What does happen is um, what can be quite coercive levels of praying, chanting, laying on of hands, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in fringe churches, in particular, sort of some evangelical churches or some Muslim groups. Like I'm talking here now about you know countries like the UK and the US, and you know that's that's actually very hard to ban. And if you tried to ban it, you would be probably infringing upon freedom of belief. But it's also not good. And I say that as the mother of a gay child, I'm very glad that my son hasn't had to to deal with beliefs about his sexuality that are dreadfully depressing and upsetting for people who, you know, honestly, there are people who are born this way. So that's the sort of historical picture. And just to be clear about what you said there, so sorry to interrupt, but uh, when you talk about this happening in fringe religious groups, this is outside of the context of the licensed practice of psychotherapy. If anything, there's maybe pastoral counselors, but that's, that's a whole separate licensure and credentialing path, right? So we're, yeah, so that's, as you say, I mean, a matter of religious freedom versus how the practice of psychotherapy is regulated. Yeah. I mean, there's nobody who's got any sort of licensed therapy, psychoanalysis, psycho, you know, psychiatrist, any of that who does anything remotely like this. So starting from sort of 2015, 2016, this new narrative came up that conversion therapy was something that was to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. And that's hugely problematic straight away because there isn't the same stable construct of gender identity as there is for sexual orientation. Like, especially for children, we know that people who identify as trans or in some way as something other than their sex, as small children or teenagers, really are super likely to stop doing so if it isn't affirmed. Like, that's just, you know, it's a growing through thing. And often, actually, it's started by being gay, being gender nonconforming because you're gay, being, you know, internalizing homophobia and so on. So now you're not meant to try to change somebody's gender identity, but their gender identity is quite likely to change anyway and might be where it is because of things that you could help in with in therapy. So that's very hard to explain. I mean, look at the five or 10 minutes it's taken for us to discuss this. And so politicians seize on these things and they say, like, we must ban sexual orientation and gender identity conversion therapy. And that's happened in many countries or in many jurisdictions. So some American states, some Canadian, Australian states, um, and there's a push to make it happen in the UK. And you know, it's a real virtue signal for politicians because what we have managed to get across to politicians in my experience here is that it's not happening. You know, it's not happening in therapy. There's no therapy that does this. But politicians don't mind doing things that are pointless as long as they get some brownies or cookies for it, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, they just they, they want some praise, they want something they can stand and say, stop torturing gay kids, you know, that sort of thing. And then you say to them, but nobody's torturing gay kids. That's historic practices. They're like, yeah, well, what's the harm? 
And then it takes you 10 minutes to explain to them what the harm is. So it keeps coming back, the idea of a SOGI um, conversion therapy bill here. We've got conservatives in government at the moment. Um, they're highly, highly likely to lose the next election. So there was a push to get it into the law, phrased very broadly. And I think that probably the people who want to get it into the law are now waiting until Labour are forming a government either on their own or with two one or two minority parties that are even more woke than they are and even keener on trans ideology. But it looked briefly about a year ago when you and I talked earlier this year, whenever it was, um, that they were going to get this bill out. And the difficulty of it is the harm that it does. Like, it's not just that it isn't happening, so it's a law that's trying to ban something that isn't happening. It would be the first time that the phrase gender identity is in law in the UK. It puts this concept into law without any real explanation. And suddenly now there is a thing, gender identity. But more than that, it doesn't really matter how many safeguards you put into the law. It's a law against conversion therapy. And we know that ideologues in social services, teaching, the police, um, you know, local councils, employers, all those places, they will use this as a tool to basically um, terrify, even terrorise would be not too strong a word, anyone who disagrees with them on this. So already here in the UK, without such a law, we hear from parents at Sex Matters who email us and say that social workers have said, unless you use your child's preferred pronouns, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to investigate you with a view to considering taking your child away. Or they say to therapists, you know, we're going to report you to your licensing body, as happened to you, of course. Um, and it doesn't matter that the law contains within it, like as the government always says, well, there'll be safeguards. It doesn't matter if the law contains within it, you know, for ethical, um, open-ended exploratory therapy or for parents having conversations with their children. If it says it's conversion therapy bill, banning conversion therapy for uh, gender identity, the law will still be used in that way. Parents know that they'll be reported and they'll be terrified and they'll go along with what it says. So we want to keep the law off the books entirely. Um, that's going to be really hard. I mean, I suspect that we'll manage until the end of this government. And I know that the tide is moving in the right direction, like more and more people every day understand the things that I'm saying, but it's a really, really tough sell for politicians because they always want to be doing something. I don't know if you've ever heard of the um, the politician's fallacy. It's a uh, Something must be done. This is something. Therefore, this must be done. And that's the way they think. So a point of clarification, you talked about parents. And I, I'm wondering if you've heard this. I, I've heard of this and I, I don't know the, the examples or the details because it's just so bizarre every time I hear about it, my brain scrambles. Um, but have you heard about these uh, laws against conversion therapy being used to attack people who are not even therapists, because I oh, have yeah, heard completely. of this where, yeah. and, and, and to be clear, these, these are laws that are in the sections of the codes of the law that are specifically about the regulation of the practice of psychotherapy. Um, and yet people who are not therapists, parents, you know, not wanting to affirm their children, for example, have been accused of doing conversion therapy. So how how can you be accused of doing something that is illegal in a profession that is not your profession in a situation that's not a professional situation is just mind boggling. But have you heard of this? And can you explain what you've yeah, heard? Yeah, completely. I mean, the law that's being imagined here is not actually just about therapists. 
it, it says generally. So a teacher could, they, they're calling it con um, conversion practices rather than conversion therapy. And they might say coercive coercion practices or conversion practices. So there's a woman um, who talks a lot about it and who's been one of the major campaigners. Jane Ozan is her name. So Jane, Jane is lesbian, but she was born and brought up in an evangelical church that was very uh, homophobic, like, the, you know, and she believed that it was sinful. Her, her orientation was sinful. And she spent a lot of her early adulthood um, going around trying to find people to straighten her out. Like she went, you know, she traveled to different countries. She sought out the sort of pastors who do do these very coercive sort of, you know, fringe practices and so on. So she now campaigns to have all conversion therapy as she sees it, which is, you know, much broader than just what happens in the therapist's office. It's what parents might say to you. It's what teachers might say to you. It's what a pastor might say to you. For those to be banned and for them to be criminal offenses. Um, but more generally than that, you know, once a law is on the books, it's out there in the wild and how it's used isn't necessarily the way that was imagined. So, I mean, I, I've had personal experience of that as have friends of mine um, where the police use what's called the law on malicious communications here in the UK, which is a law that predates um, social media. And it was intended for, you know, harassment campaigns done by phone where somebody might, you know, phone you hundreds of times a day and threaten you and stalk you and, you know, call you horrific names and tell you they're going to burn down their house and things like that. That law is now being cited when police talk to women about a single tweet in which they misgender somebody, in other words, say what sex they are. And listen, there's not one chance in a million that this would lead to a successful prosecution. But that's not the point. There's an expression in criminology, the process is the punishment. So if the police turn up and they say, you know, we want to talk to you about this and we're going to arrest you if you don't come in voluntarily for an interview, like already you're terrified. And so you, you quieten down. So there was a case here a couple of weeks ago of a lesbian woman who tweeted, I think, four or five things that were completely lawful, like absolutely 100% lawful. They were not in any way intimidatory. They were just basically like men can't be women type stuff. And she was brought in for an interview and the duty solicitor like she didn't have her own solicitor, so a duty solicitor stood up for her. And at the end, the duty solicitor said, well, she'll be more careful in future. She won't say these sorts of things in future. And I mean, this law was not written for this, but that's how it's being used. So that's what will happen with conversion therapy. There will be malicious complaints to people's regulator. There'll be malicious complaints to the police. Even, if the, even before that, it'll be cited. Like how many parents who were already very unhappy about how unhappy their own child is will even have the knowledge to say to a social worker, but I don't fall within the remit of that law. They're just going to go, shit, shit, shit. I better do what this person tells me. You know, I don't want to go through an investigation. And, you know, here in the United States, we have protections for freedom of speech, um, although it feels like they're constantly under attack, but it, we have an international audience here. So, uh, it's just, I mean, are there, what protections are there? I'm, I'm very naive about UK law. What protections are there for freedom of speech, I mean, freedom of belief? There are lots on paper. You know, Britain is a signatory to the international, um, the, the UN declaration, what is this, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And also it's a signatory of the European Convention on Human Rights. They're basically the same thing with some different wording and the rights are in different orders. And the EC, the ECHR, the European Convention on Human Rights, is domesticated in UK law under the Human Rights Act 1998. And I mean, that lists, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of belief, 
freedom of speech and in very stirring words that say, and there have been court cases that are precedent setting since then that say things like um, uh, freedom of speech is not the freedom to only say inoffensive things. Freedom of speech is the freedom to offend. Like this is UK law. Like these police, if anyone wants to get arrested, like, you know, they always get you to come in for a voluntary interview. But if anyone wants to say, no, if you want to talk to me, arrest me, and they arrest you, and they say that, you know, it's because of a tweet in which you said men aren't women, though, you've got a great case of wrongful arrest. But you've got to do that, don't you? You've got to get dragged from your house. You've got to get handcuffed in front of your neighbours. You've got to get released in the middle of the night and try and find your way home. You've got to be without your diabetes medication, whatever the hell it is. You've got to fight for months. You know, the process is the punishment. And, you know, here you and I are sitting as professional, middle-aged, middle-class white people. I really very rarely mention race, but it is relevant on this one. If we were teenage black boys living in a poor community in central London, we would not be this naive. We would not be going, this is disgraceful. Why are the police acting like this? We wouldn't have that assumption that the law is there for us. This is the first time that I've come up against an issue where the police wildly misuse the law. And it's a, you know, it's its own special type of misuse because it's very much driven by lobbyists. But yeah, the, you know, whatever's on the books, the police use it and they aren't used to getting pushback on these things. Wasn't there a case in the UK that confirmed uh, that gender critical beliefs are protected by law? Completely, yes. I mean, that's my colleague Maya Forstatter's um, precedent-setting judgment in the Employment Tribunal. So the, the two big laws that are relevant from the UK point of view are the Human Rights Act 1998 and the Equality Act 2010. The Human Rights Act is about, you know, your universal human rights, some of which are balancing rights, so they're things that can be overridden. So privacy and free speech do come up against each other, and sometimes one person's privacy gives way to another person's free speech or vice versa. And there's absolute rights, like the right to not be tortured or subjected to inhuman or degrading treatment. And that law puts a duty on governments as well. So if there's a situation that a court decides is torture or inhuman or degrading treatment, it is a positive obligation on the government to stop it. They can't just say, oh, well, that's very bad, you know. Um, and then the Equality Act is about discrimination. It's about when it's lawful or unlawful to discriminate on the basis of nine protected characteristics. Because we discriminate all the time. Like Discrimination sounds awful. But if you put up a sign saying playground for under 10s or no pregnant women on this ride in a fairground or, um, you know, pensionable age is 70 or, um, you know, we only do cervical smear tests for female people, you're discriminating. You're noticing difference. So the Equality Act says when you can discriminate and when you can't in the provision of goods and services and in employment. And it's a complex piece of law because it's more than 100 previous laws, entire acts and precedent setting court cases all rolled into one. And you know each of the nine protected characteristics is different, like race and belief and sex and gender reassignment are all different. And they all have different exceptions. And within that and the Human Rights Act, you know, there's there's plenty of room for these these people who want to push misconceptions and misinterpretations and to compare things that aren't alike, like to say that having women-only changing rooms is like having white-only changing rooms. No, they're two different characteristics with different exceptions. So that was more than you wanted to know about UK law. Sorry about that. And we will come back to some of that um, when we talk about why sex matters. Sorry, you asked me about Maya Forstatter. So she managed mm -hmm. to get her court case, her employment tribunal case, established that under the Equality Act, 
religion or belief protected characteristic. Believing that there are two sexes and that acknowledging that is important is a protected belief now in UK law. There we go. So you can't discriminate against someone in employment or the provision of goods or services in if, if you know that, that, that they think this. I recently told you about a group called Do No Harm, who's working to do just that. Eliminate the harm that so-called gender-affirming care for minors and political ideologies in medicine are causing. Do No Harm is made up of thousands of members across the country, from doctors to nurses to policymakers to concerned parents who see what's happening at practitioners around the country and are waving a red flag. Membership is free, and you get unlimited access to information from experts, on-the-ground updates from people working in medicine or state houses to take a stand, and collaboration with other thinkers. Learn more and sign up at donoharmmedicine.org slash sometherapist to learn more. That's donoharmmedicine.org slash sometherapist. But you're making this also important distinction between what's actually protected in law and then the fact that like you said, the process is the punishment and there are still people who uh, will be tested in these ways. So we'll come back later to why sex matters in all these uh, different areas that that you work on. Um, but while we're talking about the UK, let's talk about the Tavistock. Um, again, just, you know, knowing a little bit of a lot of things over here in the US, you know, I've, I've sort of witnessed, as I'm sure a lot of listeners have, as we all celebrated that the, the cast review, at least the interim report, um, you know, found very little and low quality evidence to support the experimental medical practices or being done on young, vulnerable people. And uh, the, the Tavistock Gids Clinic was ordered to close. And, and that seemed like a good thing on its surface. But I hear that there's more to the story. So uh, can you can you fill us in on what is currently happening in the UK with the provision of these so-called uh, gender identity services? So it's a specialist service. And the way the NHS works is that specialist services are commissioned at fewer places than just general services. So that would be true, say, for cancer and certainly for paediatric cancers, which are rare. And GIDS, the Gender Identity Development Service at the Tavistock, was the sole provider of NHS gender medicine for under 18s in the UK. It had a satellite. It has a satellite clinic in further north in England, but that's still run by JIDS. So so there's a clinic also in Scotland. Um, it was totally captured by gender identity ideology. Um, they, for example, um, you know, they lobbied to lower the age at which people could take cross-sex hormones, which was fixed at 16 minimum in the NHS. Um, you know, they, they basically were a, an arm. They turned by the end into the, an arm of mermaids, which is our main paediatric trans ideology charity. And Cass, the, Hilary Cass is a, she's a very eminent paediatrician who's sort of basically on her last job. You have to always be close to retirement to do these things well, because you're just never going to get another job after doing this sort of work. And she took a really good look at the evidence base and the practice at JIDS, and she said it was not safe. The caseloads were huge. People weren't well trained. Um, kids were being, you know, waiting a long time, like two or three years, and then being assessed extremely quickly and put straight onto puberty blockers or indeed cross-sex hormones. And that the evidence base for all of this was lacking. There was no follow-up. Um, you know, the Tavistock couldn't even answer how many of the kids it had put on puberty blockers had comorbidities like um, autistic spectrum disorder or eating disorders or self-harm. It didn't know what had happened to them next. If they got transferred, you know, it it it, it was absolutely a shockingly badly run service, both ideologically and in terms of its day-to-day 
So she recommended that it be closed down and that it be replaced by four regional clinics. And I see why she wanted that. She wanted it more closely integrated into general health care, because in particular, general mental health health care. What she said was um, an expression I hadn't heard before. It'd be interesting to know if you had, which was that when the word gender is mentioned, there's what she called diagnostic overshadowing. That as soon as gender was on the table, everything else that was happening to this child was parked. It turned out that gen- general doctors, family doctors, GPs didn't want to handle kids who had gender issues, even when they knew that that child also had an eating disorder or depression or self-harm or you know autistic spectrum diagnosis. So those kids wouldn't get helped for those things. They wouldn't even be referred to the local mental health services. They'd just be parked to suffer and become obsessed with gender and then get referred to the JIDs where they were just railroaded through because there was such, such a high caseload. So she wanted it to just become part of general healthcare, in particular general mental health healthcare. Unfortunately, um, it's been slower to switch over than one would have hoped, but also the ideologues have just taken over at least some of the four and the service specs for them are even worse than they were at the Tavistock. And meanwhile, a few people, including people who've been let go from the Tavistock, have set up as private gender doctors and they will offer um, a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And I mean, as far as I know, if you ask for it, you're going to get it. Like I don't, I've never heard of anyone being told, no, actually, you don't have gender dysphoria. With a few Zoom calls, like you can get it for 600 quid and they will write you a prescription and then you can bring that prescription to your NHS family doctor and ask them to turn it into an NHS prescription. So actually, um, we've just seen a news story very recently that more children, like double the number of children at least, have been taking have taken puberty blockers since Hillary Cass said there's no evidence base for these, uh, no evidence that they help, and significant evidence that they probably cause harm. It's extremely depressing. It just shows you, you know, we can't fix this by law or regulation alone. We actually have to stop the demand for these things. Like as long as children are very distressed and turning up and convinced, absolutely convinced that what's causing their problem is gender, uh, we can't. This, this will continue. That's a bummer. And, you know, I, I know so little about the law, but sort of going back to our conversation earlier on conversion therapy, I did testify here in my state of Oregon against a law that was proposed to expand the ban on so-called conversion therapy from where it's currently under 18s um, to all ages. And it, and I it was it was a matter of sort of giving feedback to my state representatives from someone who actually works in the field like, I know what your intentions might be with this law, but here's how it plays out an impact. And they didn't want to hear it. And um, similarly, you know, I've looked at proposed laws in other states, um, like I'm working with um, a, a medical ethics group on a, a different state that's not my own. And we were looking at some legislation and I was seeing again, like, oh, this I can kind of see what they think they're doing, but also all the loopholes that are built into it. And the problem really is the cultural part. And it's the demand from both sides, right? It's the demand from the vulnerable people who think this is going to fix their problems. And we can talk about diagnostic overshadowing because that's a great point related to that. Um, But it's also from the indoctrinated providers from what they're getting out of this. And so I've, I've looked at these laws and thought, I can imagine what this log looks like from the standpoint of a provider who really thinks that they are making history and, um, you know, saving vulnerable people from evil people. 
And they're just going to look at how this is worded and say, great, these are the hoops I have to jump through now. I'll jump through them. I will jump through these hoops to give these prescriptions uh, to provide the so-called life-saving care. And so it doesn't really affect any change in the long run. So it feels like a cultural shift is needed twofold for both the vulnerable people and those who position themselves as rescuers, which kind of reminds me of the whole idea and of the And I drama want to give triangle. you another example of this. Um, Sweden, before the UK, uh, there were moves in particular at the Karolinska, which was the very famous hospital um, in, in Stockholm, where a lot of the treatment of minors happened. You know, they said that they were going to stop prescribing, I think pu- only puberty blockers, but maybe also cross-sex hormones, except as part of a proper randomised control trial. And yet I'm told that it continues and it continues at the same sort of level that it was happening before, because th- there's some phrasing around exceptional. And so if you're convinced that this is life-saving care and you've got a child in front of you who's become incredibly fixated, like total tunnel vision, that this is the thing that they need, and then you add into the mix these um, absolutely unethical and disgraceful attempts to terrify everybody into thinking that a child kills themselves if they aren't put on the the gender affirmative pathway, you've got a situation where it's going to get called exceptional. And the numbers don't change. It's amazing. We've actually done some work at Sex Matters and we've written what we think um, is a proper conversion therapy bill. So we don't think that there's any way of writing a bill that's meant to stop like the old fashioned things that aren't happening in therapy and then to stick in enough enough um, safeguards that it won't catch anything that it shouldn't catch. Like we think that's impossible. We think you'd end up with so many safeguards that you end up with a, a, an offence that can't be prosecuted, actually. And government lawyers will notice that, but also that you'll see it used as a cudgel um, in totally inappropriate ways, like the malicious communications example I gave. What we think is that in the same way that we talk about modern slavery, which exists, and it's about trafficking of children and women across borders for prostitution and similar, it's nothing like the chattel slavery of you know the antebellum period in the US. So we talk about modern slavery. We think there's a modern conversion practices. And that is what happens in gender clinics, where they take a kid of one sex and they give them things that are explicitly meant to convert them into facsimiles of the opposite sex. And very often the person they're doing this to is gay. So they are turning healthy gay bodies into sterile, permanently medicalized straight ones. That's conversion therapy. And we don't think that, you know, right now we could get that into the law or anything, but we think it's time to start talking about, you know, what is the modern day version of conversion therapy? And it's what's happening in the gender clinics. And I think we've got to get all the way there before we manage to stop this, all the way to saying what you are doing is unethical, so unethical it shouldn't be allowed. I'm curious for your take on, as as we've seen the exponential increase in the number of trans-identified young people, um, it seems to me like going back, let's say 2016, maybe, um, that a significant portion of the young people at that time more kind of fit the classic profile that, that they would have grown up to be gay. But I think increasingly, the more prevalent it becomes, the more we are hearing that, let's say, 40% of Gen Z Americans identify as LGBTQ, you know, the more... The more we see of this, the more it seems to be my impression that 
gender typical children are also getting swept up into it. So we have these kind of girly girls um, who were very girly right up until age 12, when within six months, they had this rapid ROGD process. Um, And then we also have a different profile of boys. So this is kind of multiple questions in one for you, because on the one hand, I'm curious if you're seeing this and what your observations are from the UK. And then also kind of wrapped up in that is a question that I had um, written down for you before, which is, um, and sorry that I'm giving you so much to respond to at once. No, it's but fine. They all for you hang together. Yeah. It's about Ray Blanchard's typology and how we have, you know, the autogynophilic and the homosexual transsexual as two categories of male. But do you also see a third category emerging of boys who don't necessarily fit the classic profile of either of those? But just like we have these girly girls who are straight, who are actually quite gender typical who get swept up into this because they feel too vulnerable being female, because they've seen porn that has traumatized them, because they want their peers to like them, or for whatever reason. It seems like we're also seeing a new category of boys who are quite typical, often somewhat autistic, often have very male-typical interests like engineering and video games, and uh, who, who aren't feminine in the slightest, but who also kind of hit this ROGD craze and, and get really stuck in it. So what are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. Um, so, I mean, Ray Blanchard's work was excellent. It was, you know, properly done. It was properly researched. It was beautifully written. He's an excellent writer. I recommend to anyone to read the original papers. They're a joy to read and not at all like academic work generally is. I'm sure he was capturing the enormous majority of everybody that they saw at the clinic. But with these socially mediated um, conditions like anorexia or bulimia or harm, self-harm, they would be other examples. There's no reason to think that the etiology stays fixed as the culture changes. So I'm absolutely certain that there are still very gender atypical gay kids who go through the classic process of being very gender non-conforming, realizing to their horror that that makes them outcasts, maybe getting homophobic messages at home or in the culture or wherever. And then the awful thought occurs to them, was I meant to be a member of the opposite sex? Oh, I must be really be a girl. That definitely still happens. And autogynophilia, whether you think it's born or made, definitely happens. I mean, it is so obvious in so many of the men who are causing the most problem at the moment that they're getting a massive sexual thrill out of it. But there's no reason to think that Research that was done before the internet even existed caught everything that's happening now. And we know that it didn't capture everything that was happening for girls because the only females who turned up at gender clinics, the only ones they knew about were adult and lesbian and were hypergender nonconforming and knew perfectly well they weren't changing sex and weren't even massively driven by sex, most of them. I mean, there were some, this, this somewhat controversial term of autoandrophilia, but by and large, it's women who are so hyper-masculine, so hyper-butch that they just thought like, this is just much easier. I can move around the world so much more easily like this. Um, but now we've got the, you know, we know we've got these teenage girls who were never seen before. Why would we be surprised that there are also teenage boys of a type we haven't seen before? And you said about how um, it's gone beyond the original cohorts, even the ones that we saw in 2015, 16. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there are schools near me uh, state schools near me where I happen to know that pretty much 20% a fifth of all the girls on roll between 11 and 16 are on roll at the school as something other than their sex, either boy or non-binary. And that's just the ones who've gone to the bother of telling their teachers and not the ones who are playing around with pronouns or whatever among their friendship groups. There's just no way that 20% of those girls 
are in any way gender non-conforming. And then the parents who approach us or approach me personally and that I end up talking to, I mean, they tell me stories that just don't fit with any of the the, the narratives that we had even back in 2016. Um, The analogy I'd use is like when COVID started, it was people who had pneumonia or, you know, compromised immune systems or whatever. And then every now and, you know, then it was like, basically, we were all going to get COVID and we all basically did. And then every now and then you'd hear these tragic stories of a perfectly healthy 25 or 30 year old who just catastrophically got, uh, you know, a degree of COVID that killed them or, yeah, or maybe made them sick for a year or whatever. I was a healthy person in my mid thirties who got COVID and has never been the same a year and a half yeah, later. Yeah. So, yeah. so once something goes, you know, that, that's, that's very typical for a new syndrome or a new disease. It attacks the most vulnerable first, but then as it goes out into the general population, which is of course a much larger population, there's a lot more people are gender conforming than gender non-conforming. So even if it's rarer in them, that ends up being the predominant things you see. So I now have had um, conversations with families and you know you do sometimes wonder if you're not hearing from the parents what the children would say to you. But I've sometimes met the children too. And I can guarantee you that these are rock solid families with parents who are lovely people, no mental health issues, strong marriages, great communication with their kids, great parenting skills. The kids are very happy, not being bullied, nothing is wrong. And yet they identify as trans. And then, of course, something is wrong because now you've got a child who's looking for medication, who wants to brine their breasts, who's seeking to do dangerous things. Like uh, someone was telling me recently about a niece of hers who has, you know, has some learning difficulties. Now, this is an adult, young adult, and she's not the smartest kid in the sense of risk. Like she's somebody who does risky things and they have to be very careful what she does and so on. And now she's using men's toilets in public places because she's a man. And I mean, she just looks like a woman. She's not in any way passing as a man. So she's now doing dangerous things under the you know, influence of this ideology. And then with the boys, like what the, you know, what the unfalsifiable thing that the people who insist that it's all race typology say is, you just don't know that they're autogynophile. They're not telling the parents. And I mean, you know, I'm sure there's some truth to that. Like a mother was telling me the story of her 19-year-old last week. And, you know, there were many sort of vulnerabilities and mental health and, you know, some physical issues and so on. And COVID, COVID, the lockdowns has been a huge part of the story for a lot of kids of that sort of age now. But then she said to me, you know, I have found things that have made me think this is a sexual thing for him. I read your book. I read about autogynophilia and I wouldn't be surprised. Now, he's not saying that to her. He says, I'm the devil. My book had to be taken out of the house because he wouldn't come and visit if it was there. And, you know, he says that it doesn't exist and it's been debunked and so on, but she still thinks it might be him. But I mean, there's also just, there's a load of narratives that were not around when Ray was writing. And one of those narratives is a very pornified narrative that's pushed by some really predatory and nasty men online that life is much easier for girls. And if you're a beta, like not an alpha male, if you're a beta male or you're a cuck, identify as a girl, take hormones, and then, you know, you can have a sugar daddy and life will be easy because girls have it easy. And, you know, boys who are lonely or bullied or, you know, a bit hyper-focused in their teens are just, they just get caught. Like, I think the amount of grooming that happens online in this there, there really are men. I mean, if you if you have a teenager, you need to know this. There really are men who hang around on sites like Reddit where children go, looking for kids who are vulnerable. And it seems to me their pleasure, their fun in life is getting those kids to transition. 
and there'll be kids who didn't have any issues on that lines. So there's just, you know, we are, we are missing an absolute moral and medical scandal, one of many tied up together in this. And it does strike me as odd that people are so determined to say that all the boys are caught up in this for one of two reasons. Like the internet has changed everything. Social media has changed everything. Why would it not have changed this too? I can confirm everything you're saying from my side of the the elephant, you know, in terms of the blind men and elephant, right? You know, here I am doing my work of mostly talking to parents. That's mostly what I do now between counseling and consulting. And, um, and so much of what you're saying uh, fits with, with what I've witnessed from here. Like, um, sorry, just thinking of, of where to go with this. Um, I've seen families from all walks of life, you know, including some very well off families, um, some families that are blessed and, and this is where we have to acknowledge the role of social justice ideology, because uh, isn't it true also that one of Elon Musk's own children is both identifying as trans and, and hates their father's guts? That's right. And I've seen so many families where it's it's this white guilt. It's this privilege guilt. It's this they hold beliefs that are inherently self-destructive. They hold um beliefs that make themselves the enemy. So they have to attack themselves in some way and, and turning into trans identification is just kind of the next, either being trans identified themselves or being a social justice warrior who makes being an ally their whole identity. If I could pick up on that, um, I, I, I really agree, but I would also say you know, maybe here it's a bit less obvious, the white guilt. I mean, we are following you down the rabbit hole as fast as we can, but the um, <laughs> the racial history of Britain is, of course, very different from the US. Yeah. And in particular, there was never, um, you know, institutionalised chattel slavery in UK law on UK, like in these islands, like absolutely Britain did slave trading and so on. I'm not saying that the Caribbean slave trade didn't happen, just that we haven't got it in our, you know, written laws from so recently. You don't and have I do the same racial politics a, there. Yes. And I mean, you know, having chattel slavery as part of your constitution is a wound that I don't know if we know how long it takes for, to heal. It certainly hasn't healed in either Brazil, where I used to live, or in the US. And um, by now, it's too soon. But we haven't got that history here in the UK. And so racial politics is somewhat different. What I see here is what some people call the victimhood culture. So the glorification of being a victim. If you are, if you are not a victim, then you're an oppressor and oppressors are bad and victims are good. Um, and this is a replacement of two previous cultures and um, honor culture where, you know, an eye for an eye and it's like, it's the, it's the code of the mafia, basically. Like someone insults you, you off their entire family and that would, they won't do it again, you know? And then there's dignity culture, which sees uh, it elevates people who have self-control, but also people who turn to authority to fix their problems. So it does require having good institutions. And now we've got victimhood culture in which the good people are the people who are downtrodden. And if you're not downtrodden, that means you're not good. So everyone wants to be good. Everyone wants to feel good about themselves. Everyone wants to be liked and admired. And if the only way you can do that is by being oppressed, but it so happens your parents are lovely, you live in a nice home, you know, there isn't a racial issue for you, whatever that means for wherever you are. Um, you, you know, there's nothing you can identify into except being non-binary or trans. 
And I mean, I don't know if you've heard the expression spicy straight. Oh, yeah. So this is yeah, straight people who identify as non-binary or agender or asexual or queer or whatever with that, you know, basically. I have a story like about Julie that. Julie Bindell calls them the blue fringe brigade. And I mean, I do have a gay son. And I mean, he doesn't hang around in any of these LGBT groups or whatever, because they're just basically full of straight girls <laughs> who call themselves they, them. And, you know polygender or asexual or queer or something. And I mean, there's just nothing to do with him. Nothing at all. I have a funny story about the spicy straights. Um, so I went to grad school in California between 2010 and 2013. And so I saw some of this ideology then, but also when it was much smaller, um, it wasn't the dominant narrative in every situation. And so I remember one in one of my graduate counseling classes, uh, the teacher divided us into um, basically like the straight people and the LGB. And um, now, but this wasn't like full blown woke. It was more like, let's have a little focus group um, amongst the people with this lived experience. And then right. let's reconvene. And, and this was from the perspective of people who are supposed to be learning cultural competency in providing counseling to people of diverse backgrounds. So I have no problem with that in theory. It's not like, it's not like the level of segregation that they're doing okay. nowadays. Um, but it was really for a particular exercise. And there is this one girl in my class who was always the wokest in every situation. She was the one who did presentations on things like fat phobia, for example. Um, but she was sort of the minority voice in that time. She was the one social justice warrior in her class. And she basically said, I identify as queer, but I'm heterosexual. <laughs> she wanted to join the queer people. And, um, and the teacher was like, no, she was just like, go, go join the other straights. And um, that, that would never happen. I mean, that was maybe no. 2011, 2012. Back then, the teacher was like, sorry to break it to you. You belong at the straight table. And, that, <laughs> and, and nowadays, if the teacher divided the class like that, it would be like 60% in the I identify as queer group. And what would they come up with that's actually useful to the to the rest of the class in terms of insight into the unique counseling needs of gay and lesbian people? Because, they, because they're just everybody now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary when you think, like, it's not like homophobia has gone away. I, I was thinking about this just the other day because I was listening to somebody really do their best not to refer to their child according to their sex. And the child wasn't there, but I happen to know the child identifies as a they, them. And obviously the parents felt it was so important um, to their child, and I don't know what conversations have been had, that they weren't willing to refer to their child according to their sex in any circumstance. Because, you know, if you do that, even when you're just talking to friends, you might do it in front of your child, I presume. And I thought, like, they are the most liberal people I know in, in the American sense of liberal. They're not at all liberal in my sense of the word. <laughs> like they absolutely don't believe in freedom of anything, in my opinion. But anyway, so they would be super, they would be the equivalent of, you know, your portal and social justice warrior. They're also absolutely lovely people. They're some of the people I like best in the world. But they're people that there was nothing left for their child to rebel against, like literally nothing. I'm not sure what this child could possibly have done to shock their parents. So what was left was to impose an incredibly irritating speech code <laughs> on the parents. I mean, I just this is, a, this is a child who's left university. This is not a little child. It's not somebody who lives at home. 
I just thought going home, wow, you know, you really managed to cause your parents like really significant difficulties there. You could, you know, getting a tattoo wouldn't have worked. Any sort of tattoo, no piercings would have worked. You could have shaved your skull. You could have, you know, dyed your hair any color you liked. They'd be positively pleased if you were gay compared with straight. Um, you know, there's no job that you could have done that would have disappointed them. They just would, they absolutely nothing left. So this child has found something really, really excellently irritating. <laughs> um, let me look through back through my notes and see if there's anything we touched on earlier that I want to come back to before we move on. So, um, well, I, I do have a couple questions going back, actually. You had mentioned that the Tavistock had basically become an extension of mermaids. And... Um, I know there was some drama that went down in the last year regarding Susie Green and mermaids. And again, I can't quite keep fully informed on everything. So do you have any updates on their affairs? I mean, not really. Like, you know, it's obviously it, it's it's in crisis in the sense of leadership type crisis. I, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting anything untoward in the way of finances or anything like that. Um, Susie Green left and was replaced. And then that person has stepped down and Susie Green went on to gender GP, which is one of these, um, you know, we'll give you drugs um, very young uh, after a Zoom consultation run by a couple, uh, Helen Weberly and her husband, who were both investigated for fitness to practice. Um, and actually Helen Weberly came through that, but some of the things that came up in the hearing were very distressing. Um, and Susie Green has now left Gender GP and I don't know what she's doing instead. So Mermaids was being investigated by the Charity Commission, I think over safeguarding because they lost a member of the board and a key member of staff who was digital engagement. Both The, the member of the board had um, written paedophile apologist material as part of his academic work before he was actually headhunted, apparently, by Mermaids. And the, the digital um, engagement guy, who somebody would be engaging with, you know, vulnerable children, um, like posting pictures, was, he was a they, them, non-binary person, and he liked posting pictures of himself as a very sexualized schoolgirl, like in a little mini skirt school uniform and stockings and, you know, the sort of poses and things like that. And had also done some really very graphic porn shoots that were available easily if you searched online. Now, look, people can do porn. Doesn't It does make you a bit um, not quite the right person for a job when your porn is on the internet and you're interacting with vulnerable kids, but also... Your Instagram has these, you know, sexualized schoolgirl type things. So they both went and um, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't know what's happening with any of that. I don't know what's happening with the Charity Commission investigation. I mean, of course, there's plenty of people who misunderstand all of this and think that it's just homophobes or transphobes who are attacking mermaids, that it's a brilliant charity. It still gets donations. I mean, what we can definitely say is that they are, you know, to put it at a minimum, they are not using safer recruitment practices. Um, there's a whole backstory here about recruitment for safeguarding purposes into positions where there are vulnerable people, whether that's children or adults with learning difficulties or so on. And um, there's a whole way that you're meant to think about recruitment into those charities and schools and so on uh, to try to stop infiltration because we all know that that's exactly where people try to infiltrate who have not got children's best interests at heart. And I'm absolutely not saying that of either of the two people I've mentioned. I have no idea what their interests are. What I'm saying is if you hired those people, you cannot have been doing proper safeguarding in your recruitment 
because it's meant to pick up the other things in a person's life and whether that person is prone to lying or whether they might have vulnerabilities that mean that they are not the right person to work with children. So, I mean, Mermaids has shown itself to be unfit to work with any children, let alone vulnerable children, and yet on it goes. I mean, it's it's very depressing the extent to which inertia keeps these awful things, like at the Tavistock, like mermaids. You know, you, you feel like you've got enough material that surely, surely you should be able to get them to close down, but there's no mechanism for getting them to close down. And most people don't hear what we're saying. You know, we're not on the BBC. We're not put out by the New York Times. You know, loads of people still think mermaids is good. Wasn't there um, something that went down in the last year where mermaids came after the LGB alliance and and it ended up backfiring on them? So they um, they did something that, as far as I know, is unprecedented in UK law, which was that they challenged the Charity Commission's registration of LGB alliance as a charity. And it's not it's not common to do that Um and in particular, it's not common to do it on ideological grounds because charities can have completely opposing ideologies. Like this country has pro-abortion and anti-abortion charities. It has atheist charities that regard all religion as a very bad thing. And it also has obviously lots of religious charities. So Mermaids, it brought this challenge to the Charity Commission and it was very costly for the LGB Alliance, which was not fair, actually, because it wasn't a challenge against LGB Alliance. It was a challenge against the Charity Commission. But the Charity Commission didn't do a proper job of defending itself. It just said it stood by its decision or something like that. So LGB Alliance had to lawyer up and had to have expensive barristers, too, uh, at the hearing, which went on for days. I mean, I went to the beginning of it, but I couldn't stay to all of it. It went on for several days. But the most extraordinary things were done. I mean, really. Like, you know, they they said that it was bigotry for a lesbian. Like, the LGB Alliance was founded by two lesbians. Like, it's for gays and lesbians, but it was two lesbians. Um, two real stalwarts, women in their 70s, and you know, who did amazing work back in the day fighting actual homophobic laws. They're still doing amazing work, of course. You know, telling them that they were bigots for saying that a man can't be a lesbian. And yeah, that really just happened in a UK court. So then the, it took absolutely ages for the decision. And the decision was that the charitable registration had, you know, it, it was it was acceptable, that it had not broken charity commission guidelines. So LGB Alliance is still a charity. And I mean, I think Mermaids came out of that much worse. But again, you know, the superficial narrative, you know, the controversial charity LGB Alliance challenged, you know, yada, yada, yada. And if all you hear is... Uh, you know, transphobia is the modern homophobia or, you know, you judge what's going on in the country according to what's in the BBC or the New York Times, you know, then as far as you're concerned, you know, LGB Alliance hung on by the skin of its teeth. It's very depressing. Mm. So not not exactly the most inspiring news, um, you know, sort of another I mean, one of those examples held on. where, well, just like you were saying, the process is the punishment. Mm. Um, oh, completely. And then one of the things they complained about was that LGB Alliance hadn't been doing enough for gay, gay and lesbian people. You're like, well, that's because we've had to spend hundreds of thousands defending this absolutely vexatious uh, legal process. Like they're a tiny organisation. And for 18 months, that was the main thing they had to do. If you're looking for a simple way to take better care of yourself, check out Organifi. 
I start every day with a glass of their original green juice powder mixed with water. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, matcha, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. It's the best tasting superfood supplement I've ever tried. It's super easy to make and it makes me feel good. Organifi also makes several other delicious and nutritious superfood blends, such as red juice, immune support, protein powders, a golden milk mix, and even superfood hot cocoa. Check out the collection at Organifi.com slash SomeTherapist. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash SomeTherapist. And use code SomeTherapist to take 20% off your order. One other thing that we touched on briefly and not come back to was this idea of diagnostic overshadowing. And I'm just wondering if if there's anything to talk about there. I'll just kind of give my sort of pitch on this, which is that it, it very much ties in to the ideological capture of the counseling profession, um, because it takes those of us who are actually in a position to diagnose, to uh, contribute to this problem, which is really that the the indoctrinated therapists have this unsubstantiated but but stubbornly held view that um, when you see depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, PTSD, whatever it is in uh, a person who is or might consider themselves to be trans identified um, or who has gender dysphoria or what have you, that all the other problems are secondary to this fundamental existential problem of uh having been so-called born in the wrong body, which of course is an unfalsifiable belief. There's no diagnostic way to confirm this. There's not a blood test or a brain scan for it, but it's this idea. And uh, so it's that everything is downstream of that. And it's really a hypothesis. So, uh, you know, so the idea is all the other problems must be downstream of that. If we fix that, it'll change everything else. And if it doesn't, it's because of bigotry. It's because of external factors. It's not because there's anything inherently self-destructive about these beliefs or anything that we're, we're not addressing here. And so, you know, it's sort of like this double whammy, this one-two punch with the conversion therapy laws um, that basically create a situation in which uh, anybody else you know, with views like mine is afraid to work with this population. Um, and I know there's, there's debate in our field. There are therapists who would challenge me on this. They, there are therapists who would say, stop fear mongering, Stephanie. We need competent clinicians to not be afraid to work with this population. And, you know, there's nothing actually written into law that says you must affirm. And it's like, well, yes and no. It's like you and I are talking about how the process is the punishment. And yes, I went through my process and that was its own punishment. And I did not get a punishment besides that. I did not lose my license. I did not have to pay a fine, take continuing education, have any kind of slap on the wrist. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's yes. And right. It's, and I've talked to other therapists who have said, well, I've never had I've never had attacks on my license. I've never harmed a patient. There's no evidence that I've harmed a patient. I would not harm a patient. So therefore I'm fine. But if anybody ever comes after me, I'm willing to lose my license. And that is the place that someone has to get to. I think they have to be willing to face the possible worst case scenarios in order to have the freedom to practice how they see fit. But I think the dilemma is that therapists tend to be empathetic, agreeable, conscientious, um, 
therapists tend to have worked very hard to get where they're at in their career and be afraid of losing that status and the financial security that it affords them. So I want to, on the one hand, acknowledge my my critics in the therapy field who have told me that I shouldn't fear monger, that I shouldn't make people think that it's truly illegal or you're truly going to lose your license if you do, um, you know, exploratory work or you know, on that note, the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association is actually changing its name to Therapy First. So it's not like there is a specific type of therapy called Gender Exploratory Therapy, but just true proper therapy that addresses whatever's truly going on with the patient, um, which is one reason, by the way, that we should not have laws written to say things like, in order to go through these hormonal, surgical, so-called treatments, a person must have X number of hours focused on the subject of gender identity, which I have seen in some places. That's you know, maybe what they need is therapy that's not focused on gender. Maybe what they need yes. is to discover what what gender is sort of a, a red herring for. Um, so that's sort of my take on diagnostic overshadowing is that a lot of us know what's happening, but it's just that those are the people who are gung-ho about working with this population. They sign up, they volunteer to um, be on these lists of therapists that will write a so-called gender-affirming letter after one visit. And they all have this belief that all the other problems are secondary to either having been born in the wrong body or being discriminated against for being trans. And those of us who think about this properly tend to just um, have too much fear or too much that we feel is at stake, which is why I appreciate when you, you pointed out earlier that Hillary Cass was near retirement, right? And I think, you know, I definitely encourage people who are near retirement or feel like they have less to lose to speak out because I think they are in the best position to do so. Absolutely. And, you know, I was listening to you talking about these un- these unforcifiable and unevidenced beliefs that the the other problems are all secondary to gender. And it reminded me of, you know, a very stupid thing that happened here a little while ago. So the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is the statutory body that tries to uphold the Equality Act in effect, and it has done some good things. But I mean, I'll skip over the grief that their very nice and very good boss has had over the past year from people who are attacking her because she thinks that sex is real. But they brought out this idiotic recommendation to schools to track um, bullying in schools according to the characteristics of the children, in particular according to their sexual orientation and whether they had the protected characteristic of gender reassignment, which is the legal category that's nearest to having, you know, to being trans, to identifying as trans. And we you know we wrote a, a response to this. We at Sex Matters wrote a response to this, which was focused on, you know, how very bad that is in seen in the light of safeguarding. You looked to see what the Equality and Human Rights Commission's safeguarding policy was, discovered it didn't have one. It has a huge policy. Literally, the word safeguarding doesn't come up in it. You do not tell adult teachers to ask children questions about their sexual orientation and gender identity. And so we wrote that. We said, you know, this should have been picked up. If you had a safeguarding policy, you would have picked this up. And then we were talking to somebody else who works in the education field in law. And she said, yeah, that's completely true. But there's something much worse about it, which is that you don't talk about bullying in terms of the characteristics of the bullied person. It's the bully. The bullying is about the bully. And when you say, let's, you know, do a census of schools, which they literally use that word census, let's do a census of school kids to see who's, um, you know, who's gay and who's trans and what their bullying experiences are. You're saying that bullying is because people are gay or because they're trans. No, bullying is because of bullies. 
Bullies look around for all the vulnerabilities. They'll bully somebody who's fat. They'll bully somebody who's, you know, racially different from the other kids in their class. They'll bully on the basis of being spotty or redhead or wearing glasses or gay or trans. And, you know, some of those aren't protected characteristics. There's no protected characteristic of being a glasses wearer or being spotty. And it's putting the thing in the wrong place. I, I understand that, you know, that's not a great way to put it, but this idea that, you know, you've got this evidence-free belief that it's because of the characteristics of the person that they're experiencing this. And then you you look for the solutions in the wrong place. Like you think about the bullied child. You think, well, what can I do to make, you know, gay kids more robust? If you've got a gay kid, you're going to think about that. Of course you are. But the fact is, it's the bullies that a school needs to tackle. It needs to have an anti-bullying policy. They don't need to be concerning themselves with what the child who's bullying people is doing it on the basis of. They need to think, like, where's the problem with the bullying? Anyway, this identity stuff, it's just driving a lot of people to look in completely the wrong places for solutions. It's a really good point. I have two major things I want to still interview you about and a question from my locals community. Um, so the, I'll sort of bookmark those two things. One is the domains of life in which sex matters, since that is the name of your organization. And another is uh, blow-ups in GC land, as you said before we start recording. Um, but before we get to those, I do want to make sure, because uh, last time I did an interview, I squeezed in my locals question to the last three minutes, and I don't want to do that again. So here's a question um, from my audience. So Psychedelic Karen wanted to ask you, well, she says, I am so happy she, Helen, is on again. I'm wondering if she is aware of any research or interventions framing the gender ideological phenomenon as Munchausen by proxy. Does she think framing it this way might actually address the root of the issue, parents needing the attention and sacrificing their children? I mean, I think any of us who've looked at some of the materials that are put out who've heard of Munchausen by proxy do have to wonder, don't we? Like, there is a sort of toxic motherhood which is about living through your child, which is by no means only Munchausen's, of course. Like, to subsume yourself to such an extent in your children and to think of yourself as a good mother for doing that, that it then becomes hard for your child to be their own person. Um... Of course, you don't want to be entirely hyper-individualistic as a mother. You can't. You've actually brought another human being into the world and there's something between the two of you that nobody else, there's no other relationship quite like it. So, so we, you know, you look at that and you think you're putting yourself in the centre of this story and you see your child as a prop. And I don't see that so much with fathers. I really see that happening with mothers I'm not aware of any research on it. Um, do I think that it would be getting to the root of the problem? Not really. It might be getting to the root of the problem for certain families. I suspect families that are not seeking help, I'm afraid, because it's the adult that has to seek help, isn't it? Or at least give permission for help to be sought. Um, I'm very sorry for those children, and I don't see really how I can get or how anybody can get to be helping them. It seems to me to be child abuse, but of course it's framed as being a great mother at the moment. I don't think it's as easy as that there's any one root of all of this. I think one of the reasons that this movement has had so many successes is that it's got many motive forces. Like we have to look at these autogynophilic men and see them as, I think, the single biggest reason that this movement has succeeded to such an extent. You know, there just are these very powerful men whose entire aim in life is to transgress women's boundaries and to force everyone else to pretend that they're women because they get an erotic thrill out of it. 
And those men think about nothing else, like men and their boners. Excuse me. You know, that is the the greatest force in human history, as far as I can see. There's nothing else that comes close to it. Um, and then there's, you know, the capture of institutions. There's the vulnerability of teenage girls. There's these weird predatory guys convincing kids that they should transition because that's what they get a kick out of. There's just so many different bits to it that I don't think we could say, well, if we fixed that one bit. And if I can link that to the question of where the domains that sex matters and what our institution does, I think that at the stage that we're at at the moment, it's probably best not to be worrying too much about why people are doing what they're doing. Like if you're a therapist, that's absolutely essential. And if you're trying to help somebody that you know, in particular a child, that's absolutely essential. But if you're trying to think like, how can we make progress against this anti-science, anti-woman, anti-child, um, anti-reality and anti-liberal ideology, you don't need to be worrying about why people are doing what they're doing. You just need to be thinking, what should the rules be? What should be happening? So Sex Matters is a single issue organisation. It just campaigns for recognising that there are two sexes, that they are immutable, and that that matters in law and life. And we don't, it's not a feminist organisation, though I think all the women who work for Sex Matters would probably say they are feminists. Um, you know, we're not, we're non-partisan. Uh, we don't take a religious position for or against. So we have a mixture of people who are religious and non-religious working for us. It's really just that and it doesn't matter why you think that sex is important. You know, there are religious people who are motivated because of that. And it doesn't matter why you think the people who insist it's not important are doing it. Some of them will be autogynophiles. Some of them are sadly misinformed because they went to university and were taught bullshit in gender studies. We just need to get back to it does matter. And then you asked, where does it matter? Well, I would argue that in interpersonal relationships, it probably always matters. Um, we always notice what sex the person we're talking to is, and probably we talk differently to people of the two different sexes in ways that we would also talk differently to people of different ages or of different backgrounds to ourselves or whatever. So to some extent, it always matters. But if you're talking about law and policy, there are places it doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter in the voting booth, for example. It used to. Women weren't able to vote. It doesn't matter when you take an exam to enter one of the professions. It used to. Women were barred from the professions. Same with university entrance. Uh, same with what subjects you study at school. It used to matter. And that doesn't mean that people will all do the same things. I mean, women and men do choose different subjects at university and do have somewhat different interests. But we don't impose those in law and policy. So where does it matter? Well, it matters where... And biology or physicality come into play, broadly speaking. So it matters in sport, very obviously. Women's and men's bodies are systematically different and men are bigger, faster, stronger, have more stamina and in pretty much every sport, a relatively mediocre man, like a man who's at the 10th or 20th percentile, will beat all women. Their skulls are thicker too. Their brains are better yeah, protected yeah, yeah. against concussions. Their necks are more rigid. Their eyes are better protected by their brows. Like actually, you can tell people sex all the way through their bodies. It's not just our sex organs. There's a good name for people thinking it's just about our sex organs, which is bikini medicine. Like bikini medicine is the idea that humans are the same except for the bits that are covered by the bikini. Well, actually, you know, 
your fingers are different, your tendons are different. Everything's different between men and women a little bit, in some ways a lot, but in some ways a little. Um, so it matters in sport. Um, it matters in um, matters of privacy. Like every society we've ever known of, people feel a bit different about being vulnerable or naked or sleeping or disclosing personal experiences, depending on the sex of the person, the other people around them. It matters for safety because men commit nearly all the crime and in particular, nearly all the sexual crime, and also they're much stronger. So women experience much higher rates of um, crime, violent crime, sex crimes, in places that they can't get themselves away from men, all men, when they're, when they're at their most vulnerable. Um, it matters for positive action. So different countries have different laws on this, but there's, it's generally recognised that women have been historically discriminated against, and you know st we still own less property. Um, there's still stereotypical beliefs about women that women you know are less capable or um you know less good at leadership or something like that and for those things you may decide to do positive action in order to for example have a women only leadership program yeah so basically anything where the fact that we come in two sexes and that one of those sexes bears pretty much all the burden of reproduction anywhere that that matters it matters that you acknowledge sex and that means toilets, changing rooms, rape crisis centres, domestic violence shelters, positive action, anti-discrimination law. Um, yeah, yeah, education, you probably need to be thinking about it in terms of tracking, like anything that requires you to track um, data in order to uh, look at or fight discrimination. Uh, course matters in sexual orientation. If you haven't got sex, you haven't got sexual orientation. So if you care about homophobia or bigotry towards same-sex attracted people, you're going to have to pay attention to sex. I think I've probably summed it up there. And in medicine, it's it's my understanding oh, yes. that we've we've been aware for a while now of the issues with the fact that uh, in medical research, male has been treated as the default uh, because females are more complicated. We have hormonal cycles that make it hard to get sort of an even read on things. And so males have been treated as the default, but this has implications for things like, like the fact that crash test dummies have been modeled after male bodies rather than female bodies, um, or the fact that what doctors are taught about what to look for as symptoms of a heart attack are more typical of the symptoms as they present in men than in women. So it seems like we've already known for a while that using males as the default in medical research has problematic implications for women. And it just leaves me wondering how much more knowledge we're losing with this. Um, oh, completely. Um, I mean, I should have said that one. That's a very obvious place, Sex Matters in Medicine. There's a good book, I'm sure you know of it, Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women. Mm -mm. And it, oh yeah, oh, I really recommend it to anyone listening. Um, it's an entire data-driven book about the way that males are the default. And listen, in medicine, I do hear, I do hear what the drug companies would say. They're the ones who are going to get sued if a pregnant woman takes a drug because she didn't know she was pregnant. And I mean, you do want to look at things without the confounding factor that some women are on the pill, some women have hormonal IUDs, women have cycles, some women don't have cycles, some are premenopause, some are postmenopause. I, I get it, I really do. But the fact is that a very significant number of the people who are taking the drug in the end are going to be female. So you've got to, you know, you've got to work around that. Um but it's not just there, you know, it's it's in all thinking about what height, like ridiculously, what height kitchen worktops are. 
um, you know, what height chairs are. Like every time I get the train into London, the chair is a little bit high for me and my feet can't reach the ground unless I um, either press too hard on the backs of my thighs or I sort of flex my foot and put just my toe on the ground. And I actually have problems with my hamstrings and my Achilles. So I can't sit comfortably on the train. In, you know, I'd have to bring along a, a sort of box to put under my feet. And, you know, honestly, it'd be better to have it a bit lower and the men could just have their, their knee up at a little angle. It'd be better for them. So the whole world has been designed by and for men. And that's still the case. And at the same time, now that we've just noticed that, we're starting to say you can't collect data on sex and you can't design things around sex and you can't record data in healthcare or anywhere else on sex. So we're never going to fix it. Like in the in the areas where men and women are most different, um, sex crimes being a really big example, like literally almost no sex crimes are committed by women and women are the large majority of the victims, especially paedophilic sex crimes or violent sex crimes. They're really, really rare among women and really very common among men. So if you record just a few male paedophiles or male, you know, rapist murderers as female, you like double the rate at which women commit these crimes, apparently. And, you know, it does matter that we know who does what when we're thinking about designing prisons, designing programs to rehabilitate people, if that's possible, thinking about risk and base, you know, risk analysis, how to keep children safe in schools, all these sorts of things. We're actually actively obfuscating the data. I'm reminded of uh, something alarming I saw on on X uh, maybe about a month ago where I read a statistic that something like 9% of men and 6% of women, it said, own sex dolls. I don't know what country this was in or the context, but I read this and thought 6% of adult human females or 6% of a woman is anything that identifies as a woman. <laughs> I have to say, I'm I don't believe those sure. figures anyway. I really don't. I mean, I don't know where they came from, but, you know, so I used to work for the Royal Statistical Society. Um, so my PhD is in maths and I used to work at the University of Cambridge in public understanding of maths and also for the Royal Statistical Society editing their magazine. And I'm deeply, deeply suspicious now of all figures unless mm. I can find out who produced them and why. That's like fair. that's the sort of figure, you know, how do we know how many, whatever country it was, owns a sex doll? Like the only people who have any chance of knowing that because it's not part of the national census or anything like that would be the people who sell sex dolls. So straight away, I just don't believe it. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, but, but, you know, on, on much more meaningful ones, like I've literally seen there is an increase in the rate of women committing paedophilic sex offences in this country, yeah. a significant one. Yep. And I don't believe and it. And it's not I women. It's men. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very well said. Thank you so much for that that piece on why sex matters. So, um, I lost it. Oh, blow ups in GC land. Let's go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> So I'd already been thinking about this. I mean, there's absolutely no reason for us to rehearse um, what happened at Genspect with the wretched blue dress. In case anyone doesn't know, don't bother looking. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> but it was, um, I'd already been thinking about this because it, I've seen it happen several times and it's kind of happened to me as well. Um, you know, there's just a lot of different people who are exercised about this question of where sex matters and how gender identity ideology or trans ideology is a huge threat in many ways. You know, people come into this because they care about kids or they care about women's rights or they care about free speech or they care about science. They're really different people. They're right and left wing. They're religious. They're atheist. And, and you know, they find other people who agree with them on this. 
and and that's great. And I, I really admire people who can work together across the aisle. But then something happens and you realise it's it's actually more fundamental than you realised. And people you thought were your allies have beliefs that you find inimical. Or um, it turns out they have very different beliefs about like why people might be identifying as trans or what we should do about it or what the happy end state that we might reach is. And because those things have not been surfaced, you know, because it's a very disparate movement and it's mostly distributed and tends to be sort of self-organised on Twitter and in little groups, these things turn into horrific sort of online pylons and blow-ups. And very quickly, they, they aren't about the thing they were about anymore. So the one that happened to me was last year um, in September 2022, I think it was. It was around then anyway. Uh, knowing that there was controversy about it, I went to the event that Kelly J. Keane, aka Posey Parker, ran in Brighton. And I absolutely stand by that decision. I think Kelly's um, Let Women Speak events have been really, really important in progress here in the UK. But Kelly and or Kelly J and um, left-wing feminists here in the UK have a very uncomfortable relationship. And there's just no point in me going into why or who's to blame or any of that. Let's just say they do. And so I came under really a lot of pressure to denounce Kelly J and I refused. And then, you know, that got me denounced. And then, you know, there were people I had to block and I was getting DMs telling me I was racist and uh, from people I had thought were sensible people that I was friends with and would work with, you know. And it was really very painful. <laughs> and then what I learned from it, though, was that, you know, there was a real thing here. It wasn't just people being jerks and it wasn't just the narcissism of small differences. There really are people who don't believe in free speech, really don't, who agree with me on the importance of gender issues. Like one woman said to me, I wish you wouldn't argue about how we need free speech protections to talk about all of this and that it's wrong that we're being attacked because free speech is important. Because She said, because we're right and they're wrong. That's why we should be allowed to speak. So she was all for silencing the people she disagrees with because she was convinced she was right. And I was like, ah, okay, now I know where you come from. And I know that I completely disagree with you. Problem solved as far as I'm concerned. You know, we cannot work together because for me, the overarching um, value that leads us to truth and that helps with decent policy making is the 19th century idea that freedom of speech is what gets us there. That's not hers. We are not allies. Um, so it, it moved away from being about the event in Brighton to actually both of us uncovering something about the other that we hadn't known before. Like she thought I'd be the same as her, all for silencing people if they were against me. And then the current one, the genspect one, um, these things tend to happen at fault lines. Like a lot of left-wing feminists aren't pro-free speech at all. They just think of it as, you know, that's a liberal value that I don't agree with. You know, in, in the in the socialist future, we won't need it because everybody will be, will be doing the right thing, you know, or something. I don't know. And the genspect one was about, um, you know, what do we do? What do we do as feminists about the fact that male sexuality is really nothing like female sexuality? And what are we going to do about autogynephilia? There's a wonderful, wonderful newsletter by Lisa Selen Davis, who's hands down one of my favourite writers. And all of it's very good on what happened at Genspect. And as far as I know, it's in front of the paywall. So if anyone does want to catch up, that's the, the one article I'd suggest they read. But in it, she says, autogynophiles have come out of the closet. They've seen the light and they like it and they're not going back in. And I'm sure that's right. There is no point in us saying, as feminists, 
as people concerned about child safeguarding, you know, no, you're not welcome. I'm going to point and laugh. I'm going to drum you out of polite society. You can keep your fetish at home. We can say you're not allowed to turn up in a rubber gimp suit or you're not allowed to turn up, you know, dressed like a hooker or, you know, actually use the women's toilets or flash or anything like that. We can't say to a man, you can't turn up in a dress that covers all of you and walk around the place, even though I know that that basically turns you on. Can't do it. And he's not going to stop. And so then you start thinking, like, what causes autogynophilia? Is it born, not made? Does every boy who's got autogynophilia, is he there because of porn? Like, I don't know the answers to this. But these are really tricky questions and they're very sensitive questions. And, you know, some answers people tell you you're a paedophile if you say them. Like, if you say somebody might be born autogynophilic, they hear you as thinking that three-year-olds can be fetishists. And other people, like, say, well, look... You know, you think everything's socially constructed. That's what got us here in the first place. Feminists who think everything is socially constructed and nothing is innate are what got us here. Now, I don't think that's what got us here, but it's part of what got us here. And sort of to summarise, one of the reasons that all of this is so difficult is because these are, in theory, empirical questions. We should be able to answer what autogynophilia is. We should be able to answer, you know, can people get over it? Can they contain it? Does it necessarily escalate? How many people are like this? You know, are the people who would be autogynophilic if they weren't, but they weren't, if they weren't uh, exposed to porn, they'd never know. But, and this was my big mic drop moment for myself, looking at what happened with Genspect. We don't trust the experts anymore. Rightly, we don't trust the experts. Because who's going to find this out except the sexologists who are exactly the same people who gave letters to men they knew were sexual fetishists to bring into women's toilets to say, I'm under the care of a doctor, you've got to let me be in here. The people who inspired the laws about how sex can change. They're the very same people who got us here. So I don't trust them anymore. And nobody does on my side of the argument. And the same with all of therapy and the same with all of law. Like it's human rights lawyers who've said, men have the right to go into women's spaces, you bigots. Lesbians can have penises, all this stuff. So we've got this radical distrust of experts in anything that could help us to answer these questions, because you could have very different viewpoints about the world. Like, you know, over here, you could be a radical feminist lesbian. And over here, you could be, you know, a conservative man whose fundamental values are religious and Christian. But if we could turn to facts, if we could say, well, look, both of those groups can accept that whatever, you know, autogynophilia is born, not made, or, you know, it's the result of porn exposure or whatever the hell, then both of them could say, okay, that's the facts. Now let's move forward. But we haven't got the facts and we haven't got a way to find out the facts because we don't trust the people. We need to find out the facts. It's a really, really good point. This this part about trust. And it's, it's something I find myself speaking to in my unique position being one of a handful of therapists who is also a public figure because most therapists are private. Um, most therapists don't have podcasts and social media, you know, followings and things like that. And then being one of the few therapists that's talking about these particular issues and specifically detransitioners who have some of understandably, entirely understandably, some of the lowest rates of trust in healthcare providers, mm -hmm. um, physical and mental health, because we've it's, it's our fault, right? And that's why yep. I and others are out here because we, we recognize that our field messed up and we harmed a vulnerable population. Um, but it, yeah, it's that element of trust in the, the breakdown 
that's, that is causing so much of this, I think, combined with our tendency to, you know, when someone has a certain degree of fame, power, whatever it is, that there's the tendency to kind of see them as um, simultaneously less than and more than human and to have certain expectations of them that are, that are very difficult to fulfill. Um, combined with our kind of black and white thinking and heuristics and then our, you know, the, the alarm signals that are built into our nervous systems to respond to perceived threats. Um, so all of that and more. And, and there was something you were saying when you were talking about uh, the difficulties that we have getting to the root of understanding something like autogynophilia that uh, clicked into place for me. And it actually reminds me of something I've been wanting to speak on for a while. And it has to do with this concept in psychology of egosyntonic versus egodystonic. Have you heard these terms? Um, so uh, probably, you know, therapists in the audience will have heard these terms. Most other people will not. Um, but it basically, these are terms that describe, and, and it's a spectrum. It's not that you're one or the other. Um, but these are terms that describe a patient's relationship to their own suffering. Um, so uh, is your mental illness, if you will, or is your form of suffering, is your psychopathology linked to your sense of who you are? Uh, or is it, does it feel foreign to you? Um, so for example, obsessive compulsive disorder can, for some people, be very ego dystonic, meaning that the person feels very distressed by having these obsessions and compulsions. They want to stop doing it. They know it's time consuming or irrational. Um, and that distress uh, associated with the sort of ego dystonic nature of their OCD um, while it makes them feel more out of control at first, it also means that they're more motivated to work on it. Um, mm. Periods of depression and anxiety in a person's life who is, let's say, normally uh, somebody who takes pride in being competent and industrious. Let's say they're going through a phase where depression or anxiety is interfering with their ability to be that hardworking, positive, upbeat person. So that's ego dystonic. They come to a therapist and they're like, help me get rid of these symptoms. Now, there's something to be said for self-acceptance, maybe going easier on yourself. Um, but also that sort of, oh, this feels foreign to me, get me out of here is part of the motivation to heal. But what we're seeing uh, a lot of these days is egosyntonic pathology. And uh, egosyntonic pathology tends to be associated with personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, especially the grandiose variety is the classic example of this. Well, of course, I'm the greatest and everyone should worship me. Isn't it, isn't it obvious, right? That person has no insight and no motivation to change. Um, so typically, if they present to therapy at all, it's maybe because they're being dragged there by a spouse that's threatening to divorce them. But the therapist in that case is probably out of luck because the therapist might, you know, be charmed and manipulated by the narcissist if they're very clever. Um, so these are sort of two ends of the spectrum. Now, for most people, whatever their form of suffering is, is somewhere in between those two extremes. Um, but but what we see these days, especially with the young generation, it ties into what you were saying earlier about victimhood culture and what I was saying about social justice culture, is a sort of egocentric. I want to be trans. I want to have gender dysphoria. And then a person sort of talks themselves into this way of thinking where it actually does look a lot like 
egocentonic obsessive compulsive disorder because they have convinced themselves through all the things that they've been exposing themselves to that, for example, they should absolutely detest showering because everyone else with gender dysphoria, everyone else who's trans cannot stand to be alone with their naked body and have to contend with what parts they have. So then they kind of work themselves into this pattern of this downward spiral of functioning. I can't shower. I can't date until I'm passing as trans because who would want to be with me? I hate myself in this sexed body and I'll only be lovable when I'm in the other. So I think that that's part of the problem that we're not talking about enough in the mental health field. Um, and I think it relates to the, the notion you were bringing up earlier of why is it that we can't get to the bottom of something like autogynephilia? Well, because we don't trust our researchers as part of it, but also because they're there are large swaths of the population for whom these issues are egocentric, and they don't have the motivation that people like you and I might have to address the problem in the least harmful ways. We're thinking uh, if there is such a thing as gender dysphoria, if that is even the primary problem rather than a secondary problem or in, let's say a narrative that someone has latched onto to ex explain their problems, um, how do we help people recover from that, heal from it, and uh, you know, in the least invasive way possible? That's a question people like you and I are asking. But that requires that we uh, conceptualize of gender dysphoria in an ego dystonic way. And this is a form of distress. I don't want to be in distress. I want to be healthy and happy and unbothered. And a lot of people are lacking that motivation. So when it comes to autogynephilia, I think because some people's sense of identity is wrapped up in it, and you also can't easily separate it out from narcissism, um, it becomes very convoluted because there are people who would want to obscure any information that we could come across that would clarify the matter if it meant that the problem would be solved. You know, I'm not seeing a whole lot of voices of men coming forth saying, I struggle with autogynephilia. I suffer from it. This is getting in my way of loving an actual woman. Um, my preoccupation with myself <laughs> um, or my porn addiction or whatever it is um, caused me to uh, dump the woman I love or ruin my marriage and I need help. That's, that's the mentality that we're not seeing. You can now watch No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care. This medical ethics documentary, formerly known as Affirmation Generation, is the definitive film on detransition. Stream the film now or purchase a DVD. Visit nowaybackfilm.com and use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to take 20% off your order. Follow us on Twitter at 2022affirmation or on Instagram at affirmationgeneration. That's so interesting. I can't. I was trying to remember. I wrote a newsletter recently, and I, I, I literally can't remember what it was about. But one of the answers to it was, you know, you're missing something simple, Helen. Um, it's very hard to persuade people that what they find sexy might be bad. And I thought that's so true. Like, you know, other people's sexual desires are so inexplicable. Like, what you like is what you like, and it's obvious that the thing that you look at and see as sexy is it's sexy. Like, you know, if you're a foot man or a, you know, breasts man, like it's obvious that feet are nice or breasts are nice. If you're, you know, as I am heterosexual, it's obvious what it is that's attractive about men. And I, I can't imagine people not thinking it's sexy. But now, what if what you like is dressing up as an adult baby or wearing what we call nappies and you call diapers? Or, you know, what if it's putting on what looked like streetwalkers' clothes when you're 65 and haven't got the body for it and, you know, parading down the street. Like, 
it's sexy, therefore it's good. And what used to keep it in the closet was shame. And I mean, shame is a very destructive emotion. I'm not giving a 100% shout out for let's bring back shame, but it did keep it in the closet. And now it's not shameful. It's not only is it not shameful, it's something to be celebrated. Like a man who's doing this is he's found his true self and his wife who doesn't go along with it is a bigot. Um, so that, you know, so it's more than that, just that it's not in the closet anymore. It's out in the sunlight and having a great time. And, this, and you, you look at these guys, they are having a ball. Like, I, 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 there's no joy like the joy of a, a bloke who's brought his cross-dressing erotic fetish out into the daylight and is wandering around enjoying himself and being told that he's wonderful and being validated by being you know, put on a, an all-female shortlist for election or some bullshit like that, or, you know, winning prizes in women's sports and being there. Like, the thing that I hear most about the men in women's sports from people who understand sport, and in particular from men, is aren't they ashamed of themselves? Like, I'd be ashamed if I entered a woman's competition and I won it, is what the men I know who play sport would say. These men have the light in their eyes of validation and happiness. Like, they're just having the greatest time of their lives And why would they ever come and say to somebody, this isn't good? You know, this thing is motivating me to destroy women's sports. It's motivating me to destroy my wife's life. Like they're being told that the wife is a bigot and she's got to get with the program. It's completely the wrong narrative. Well, I think I think what you're saying applies to people with traits of personality disorders. I I don't think it applies to what we call what we used to call normal neurotics uh, in the field. You know, I've I've had therapy patients who are just, you know, they don't have personality disorders. They're not going around causing havoc for everyone around them. They just suffer inwardly from depression and anxiety. And they do have uh, sometimes excessive amounts of shame about things like uh, fantasies of cheating on their partner, which they would never act upon. Um, You know, that, that is more the profile of the typical normal neurotic who has some shame and repression. Um, And, and it just seems like we're kind of entering an era where the normal neurotic is on the decline and the, uh, the egocentric personality disordered, you know, delighting in crossing the boundaries of others is, is really trending. And and um, it might be, but I think specifically the link now, with but, sexuality, yeah, you know, specifically the link with sexuality for men. Like it used to be shameful to be gay, and obviously I don't approve of that. But it did keep gay people in the closet. So if you thought that gay was bad, you would think that shame was good. Mm-hmm. And now we've got men coming out performing their fetish, and if you don't think that's a problem, well, okay, then you don't need shame. But then it comes back to the why you do things that I said about sex matters. Like, you know, you and I are talking because you're a therapist and I have theories about this. You're willing to indulge me. So, but it doesn't matter why the man wants to do it. If he's, you know, if he's transgressing other people's boundaries, no is the answer. And then that brings me to, you know, the role of medicine in all of this. So if you think of a man and he doesn't have any shame about this and he's delighting in it and he wants to be able to wear these things and he wants to go out and he wants to join a women's football team and he wants to go into the women's changing room and everything that you can possibly think of. And he goes to a doctor and the doctor is convinced that he has a trans identity and he's willing to give him surgery and willing to give him hormones or whatever. That doctor isn't saying to him, but you'll never be able to go into the women's changing rooms. You're never going to be allowed to play in women's sports. Uh, 
you can wear women's clothes if you want, but you're not going to be able to force women to call you a woman. And if somebody says that you're a man and a cross-dressing man, you're not going to be able to call the police. You're not going to be able to get them fired. I think that man wouldn't do any of it. Because the reason he's doing all those major medical interventions is because he's being told by a combination of medicine and the law that it will give him what he wants, namely the right to trample over everybody else's rights. So I think the right place to start for the organisation that I work in, which does not do therapy, is, is the law. Because if we get it so that men, no matter what they do to their bodies, are simply not allowed into women's spaces then some of those men who have no shame, who take delight in crossing boundaries, will never go down this path because they can't ever get what they want. And that's been made clear to them by the law and by their doctors. So part of this um, modern conversion therapy bill that I mentioned to you earlier in this interview, uh, one of the provisions in it is that uh, you would do no gender medicine at all, like no no um, puberty blockers, no cross-sex hormones with children at all, no, nothing with minors. But with adults, you would have to get them to sign saying they understand that nothing that can be done in the gender clinic changes their sex, that getting these treatments or getting any piece of paper from the government does not give them the right to use any facilities or services or spaces that are intended for the opposite sex, and that there will be no restrictions on other people recognising their actual sex and speaking about it freely and acting accordingly. And if somebody's willing to go along with all of that, then you could imagine, yeah, all right, fine, you can get your genital surgery and you can have your breast implants or whatever. You understand that this doesn't mean that women have to see you as a woman and they won't, by the way. Very clear. Yeah. And I've often wondered if if we weren't coddling these people and, you know, pro providing this illusion for them, because I remember when I was, when I was a a so-called gender affirming therapist. And, you know, I always say like, thank goodness I didn't go on to the next level of training and actually like write those letters. But I remember um, telling trans identified people about this app called Refuge that would help them find bathrooms, uh, like single stall bathrooms and things like that. And, you know, I think that type of action on the part of a therapist is one of about a thousand things that professionals have done to send the message that uh, healthcare providers are going to go above and beyond and try and be activists and try to change the world for you. We're going to try to sort of carpet the world so that you don't have to wear shoes, um, to use a, mm. a common metaphor, right? And I, I think that that's part of the dilemma and that if there were this cultural shift where people weren't being coddled and they weren't being sent the message that not only are you going to receive this so-called gender affirming care, but there's a whole lot of activists and advocates who are going to do all this work to kind of pave things for you. Um, yeah. If that might be a cultural shift yeah. that could. Yeah. And then we wouldn't need to worry about whether it's Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Mm. Mm. The kid can't get hormones. The parents can't lie to the child and say, I can change your sex. Mm. Because, you know, the fact is that schools aren't telling that lie. Um, I mean, we're talking very a lot here at the moment about social transition in schools because there's guidance imminently due out from the Department for Education on what schools can do. And if you can't socially transition at school, then what's the point in the gender clinic telling you you can? Like if your parents want to homeschool you, I suppose they can. But I mean, very few kids are homeschooled. It's a real imposition on a family. So, you know, it's been, it's been, I would say, between law and medicine, but then other institutions like schools co-opted, each of them passing the buck to other ones, each of them responding to decisions that were made by the others. In the end, decisions are made 
but it's not clear who made the decision. Like when you end up with a child who's reached 18, has not gone through puberty because it was blocked, has taken cross-sex hormones, you know, is anorgasmic, is sterile, is about to get surgery on their genitals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can't point and say who made that decision. Mm. It was made by a lot of people, mm -hmm. each of them assuming that everybody else would accommodate whatever aspect of the decision they made. And then if you end up with some bit of the, the whole picture, in this case, schools saying, you know, you can call your child the opposite sex if you like, but we have a hard and fast rule in this school that no boy, no matter how he identifies, is literally ever allowed into any space that's only for girls and vice versa. How can you socially transition your child then? Those were really good points. Um, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been an absolute pleasure. So Helen Joyce, where are all the places that people can find you? Oh, well, thank you for having me on. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. Loads of great questions and loads of insights for me too. Um, well, my own website is thehelenjoyce.com and people can find it right there. Some of it's behind a paywall, but some of it isn't. Uh, I tweet what most people will probably say too much, but actually I don't spend all that much time on the site. I tend to punctuate my writing. When I finish a paragraph, I'll have a little quick look and send an angry tweet about something. And that's at hjoycegender. So everything that I do, it can be found on Twitter. And then the third place that people could look for work that I and my colleagues do at Sex Matters is the Sex Matters website, which is sex-matters.org. And my colleague and the um, executive director, Maya Forstatter, uh, who's the person behind the judgment that said that, you know, it's not bigoted to notice that sex is real and binary. Um, she is a powerhouse who writes an enormous amount of policy work and, you know, of course, it's all focused on the UK, but anyone who's thinking about any of these issues in terms of law and policy and rulemaking anywhere, you can find a lot of materials that you will find helpful because they're very well written and very clear. Um, yeah. Wonderful. And your book, Trans, uh, sorry, is it When Ideology or Where? It when is, Ideology. So when that's, the, um, that's the original title, oh, Trans okay. When Ideology Meets Reality, but it has been reissued as Trans Gender Identity and the New Battle for Women's Rights. I have only written one book. Got it. So there, okay. you know, if, if you find it and it starts trans, it's me. In any case, your book, Trans, uh, various subtitles is in my bookshop, uh, sometherapist.com slash bookshop, and will also be in the show notes. Thank you again. It's been lovely. Thank you, Stephanie. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. To check out my book recommendations, articles, wellness products, guest episodes on other podcasts, consulting services, and lots more, visit sometherapist.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at sometherapist. If you'd like to go deeper, join my community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. Members can dialogue with other listeners, post questions for upcoming podcast guests to respond to, or ask questions for me to respond to in exclusive members-only Q&A live streams. To learn more about the gender crisis, watch our film, No Way Back, The Reality of Gender-Affirming Care, at nowaybackfilm.com. Special thanks to my producers, Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix, and to Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. If you appreciate this podcast and want more people to find it, kindly take a moment to rate, review, like, comment, and share on your platforms of choice. Of course, just because I am some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. 
And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.